on the viewpoint. Good evening, everybody. It's oh, it's crazy in studio. I can tell you right now, the voice you hear that is calm is the metaphor of a duck on top of water. You should see how crazy things are happening behind studio. Nonetheless, it's the 29th of October, 2020. It's Thursday, the final broadcast for this week. And as we had started last week, the inaugural lecture of the Oatambo Memorial Lecture Series this week we shall do so with Miss Tsitsi Dangaremba. Of course, she is a Zimbabwean novelist, activist, as well as a filmmaker. In a short while from now, we will go then to that second leg of the Owartambo Memorial Lecture Series. It's taking place, of course, in commemoration of the legend's 103rd birthday celebrations. Tsitsi Dangaremba, as I've said, is that speaker. She is no stranger to politics because her activism is predicated in all post-conflict societies and how specifically post-colonial Africa has been able to rebuild or continue plunging herself into chaos after the other. Of course, memorial lecture will be opened and was opened by Miss Lebu Mashila, who performed the poem. So there was quite a spectacle taking place there. This is the second of four, so we will keep doing this on Thursdays. So, ladies and gentlemen, after this short break, we will get right into it. I understand there isn't a short break. Uh, Let's play the clip then. I beg your pardon. Ladies and gentlemen, our keynote speaker for this evening is Zizi Dangaremba. Zizi Dangaremba is a Zimbabwean author, filmmaker, and activist who became the first Zimbabwean black woman to publish a book in 1988 with her debut novel, Nervous Conditions, which was published when she was just 25 years old. The book is a modern classic in the African literary canon and was voted in the top 10 of Africa's 100 best books of the 20th century. The sequel, The Book of Not, was published in 2006 to much acclaim. Dangarembra also also studied film direction in Berlin, where she was involved in the production of various narrative and documentary films, again breaking records. Her directorial debut, Everyone's Child, was the first feature film to be directed by a Black Zimbabwean woman. In 1993, Dangarembra wrote the story for the highest grossing film in the history of Zimbabwe, Neria. She founded the International Images Film Festival for Women in Zimbabwe. And in 2006, the independent named Dangaremba, one of the 50 greatest artists shaping the African continent. Her third novel, This Mournable Body, a sequel to the Book of Not and Nervous Conditions, was published in 2018 and has been shortlisted for the 2020 Booker Prize. Dangaremba's work combines the politics of decolonization theory with issues of feminism and women's rights. In July 2020, Dangaremba was arrested for peacefully protesting against the corruption and economic hardships in Zimbabwe, and she is currently out on bail. Tonight, I've written a poem in honor of Tsitsi Dangaremba, and the poem is addressed to Tambuzai. Um, if you are a lover of nervous conditions and this mournable body um, and the, 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 the trilogy that of, of novels that, that Tsitsi has produced, you will know the character of Tambuzai quite well. Um, so I start. Dear Tambuzai, the men and women returned home, but they never came back from the battles. 
There is no pension plan for revolutionaries. No 12-step program for family turned to rubble. No one told the heroes that there are crumbs so big they fill up buildings in Dubai, ships, planes, and the insatiable arteries of the mind and milked earth. The only place Nahanda could keep safe from her captors was the long corridor of dreams in her mind. Our heroes gleam from black and white photographs stamped in your mouth, Tambuzai, when we believed they stood for us. The day after Chimurenga, the day after Lancaster House, when Nahanda saw them, she saw millions behind them. We believed they saw us too. Power is a two-way mirror. It pulls out who you know yourself to be. The bones of Kukuruhundi, Marikana, and AIDS babies are dancing, Tambuzai. They knew you before you knew yourself. When you said you are not a good girl, the bones grew spines of their own. Branches and leaves, they hold on to every rebel who has watched the collision of two worlds give birth to a border child. Your country was once named for a genocidal genius. His statue fell, but his company didn't. There remains a price on all of our heads. If you have loved a place that does not know how to love you back, you are an activist. Tambuzai, there is no home for those who love their countries enough to change their countries. There are prisons and footprints across nations like ORs. There is art where we make ourselves anew. The vision chiseled in the eye of the sculptor, the streets fed and healed by mothers, the post-colonial web of diplomacy, armed struggle, capitalism, democracy, kleptocracy, and state violence. If the state is failing now, then when has it succeeded? Your daughters have been coming, Tambuzai. They are here, burning on digital stakes, borderless, belting out. We don't know how to wait anymore. We encourage everyone who is watching this evening, please go on to our YouTube page where you're watching from and ask questions. We invite you to ask questions of our speaker. Um, also, if you haven't already, please share the YouTube link that you're watching on your other social media and invite other people to join us as well. Ladies and gentlemen, it gives me great, great, great pleasure to introduce to you, to welcome onto the stage, Ms. Tsitsi Dangaremba, to deliver the seventh annual Tambo Lecture titled The Post-Crisis Crisis After Uhuru. Thank you so much for that wonderful introduction, Lebo Mashile. It was absolutely mind-blowing. And thank you for speaking to Tambudzai. I'm sure Tambudzai and many young women like Tambudzai need to hear those words. Thank you for your wonderful poems, both of them. Good evening, Ms. Nsimang, CEO of the Oliver and Adelaide Tambo Foundation. Good evening, all members of the Tambo family and all present from the Oliver and Adelaide Tambor Foundation. Good evening, all guests. Thank you for joining this evening. 
It is my absolute pleasure and honor to deliver the seventh annual Oliver Tambo Memorial Lecture. Now, the brief sent to me by the foundation emphasized that Oliver Tambo practiced values-based leadership. And I think we saw that in the clips that were screened this evening. The brief also indicated that the foundation was established to promote, protect, and preserve the legacy of veteran freedom fighters and doyans of democracy, Oliver and Adelaide Tambo. It went on again to say that the foundation achieves these aims by undertaking education-focused community upliftment initiatives that seek to instill the values for which the Tambos stood into a new generation. It goes on to state, we believe that these values, such as integrity, selflessness, and collective servant leadership are critical in consolidating democracy. The topic I speak to is the post-crisis crisis after Uhuru. The questions I would like you to keep alive during this talk are, what kind of values are exhibited by the leadership we have now after Uhuru? Are these values that we see in our leadership today, the values that inspired this lecture series, that is the values of integrity, selflessness, and collective servant leadership, or not? I speak from the example of Zimbabwe. I am not an expert in any field except my own writing as a novelist, but I am familiar with the situation in Zimbabwe as a citizen who lives and works in my country. I hope my lay perspective will enlighten in some measure, and I flatter myself that the foundation invited me to share this evening as a community voice and not as a specialist voice. I also flatter myself that while I speak to the situation in Zimbabwe, colleagues from South Africa and other African nations will find useful points of reference in what I have to say. I would like to look at the word Uhuru. Uhuru is a Kiswahili word, as I'm sure you all know. Originally, Uhuru meant freedom. During the 20th century independence movements and liberation struggles here on the continent, Uhuru came to mean political independence in the sense of being freed from former colonial rule and in some cases, colonial occupation. This is to say, there are two ways in which we can understand Uhuru. We can understand it in a specific sense, which refers to political independence. Or we can understand it in a wider sense, which refers to a more general condition of freedom that is valued in and of itself without being measured against former colonial powers. Freedom can be understood as the power to think, speak, or act as one wants. 
independence from colonial rule has been achieved. Thus, the crucial question in today's topic is whether now, in a dispensation of political independence from colonial rule, citizens have the power to think, speak, and act as they want. Following on from this is the question of whether observed degrees or amounts of freedom do or do not constitute a crisis. So to engage with these questions, I look at how freedom is framed in what I call Zimbabwean founding national discourse. I define certain indicators of freedom I proceed to describe the situation in Zimbabwe today with respect to these indicators of freedom. I compare notions of freedom contained in the Zimbabwean founding discourse to what is actually obtaining on the ground. I evaluate the state response to the situation on the ground. What is the state doing about the situation of freedom that obtains on the ground. I make my conclusions concerning a post-Uhuru crisis. I propose that the founding discourse of Zimbabwe as a nation state is contained in the Constitution of Zimbabwe. Chapter four of the Constitution is the Declaration of Rights. This Declaration of Rights acknowledges the duty of the state and every citizen to respect human rights and freedoms. It lists 31 of these rights and freedoms which must be respected by all. These constitutional rights and freedoms indicate which parameters Zimbabweans in consensus when the constitution was written, agreed, give a desirable state of general freedom to citizens, a state in which citizens may think, speak, and act as they want. These constitutional freedoms may be thought of as discursive rights and freedoms. This distinguishes them from practical rights and freedoms which are in fact enjoyed by citizens on the ground. So I want to see whether is a disc, there is a disconnect between what the constitution says and what is happening on the ground. From the 31 rights and freedoms contained in the constitution, I have extracted a list of those which appear to me to be most pertinent to this evening's topic. These are the right to life, to personal liberty, to human dignity, to personal security, to freedom from torture or cruel, inhuman or degrading treatment or punishment, to privacy, to freedom of assembly and association, to demonstrate and petition, freedom of expression and of the media, labor rights, political rights, property rights, the right to education, to health care, and to food and water. 
These discursive rights and freedoms from the constitution can be grouped into clusters. There are those which pertain to biological or physiological life, such as water, food, healthcare. There are those which pertain to community life, such as freedom of assembly. There are others which pertain to economic life and to political life. There are also those rights and freedoms which pertain to the security and dignity of the person. The categories do overlap somewhat, but grouping assists analysis. In Zimbabwe, independence was achieved through violent contestation for power in the form of an armed struggle, as Lebo has informed us in her beautiful poem. At the same time, as it ushered in independence, violence also breached the security and disrupted the dignity of the person. Thus, political independence was ushered in by processes that violate a person's security and dignity. It is therefore instructive to compare the situation in Zimbabwe today with respect to dignity and security of the person with the situation that obtained at independence and which was endemic to that independence. And also to assess relative degrees of freedom with respect to security and dignity of the person today at times when power is contested the way it was being contested in the run-up to independence. In this cluster of security and dignity, I include the right to life, to personal liberty, to human dignity, to personal security, to freedom from torture or cruel, inhuman or degrading treatment or punishment. It is, of course, possible to do a similar analysis for all the other kinds of rights and freedoms, economic, political, and so forth. But because of the way that these issues of security of the person and dignity of the person are integral to independence in Zimbabwe, it is these ones that I am going to look at to make the comparison between what we have today and what we had before independence. Zimbabwe's political independence from Great Britain became official on 18 April 1980. Leading up to independence was a protracted armed struggle between the settler Rhodesian community in the form of the Rhodesian state, which made a unilateral declaration of independence from Great Britain in 1965 and the military apparatus of this Rhodesian state. That is one side of it. And then on the other were the nationalist political structures and their armies, which were mostly exiled and which were informed by the ideologies of the then Eastern Bloc. The general objective of the Rhodesian military apparatus was to prop up the rule of Ian Smith in the newly independent white state of Rhodesia. 
The general objective of the nationalist political structures and their armies was to introduce majority rule. More specifically, according to Chingono, that is General Chingono, not the journalist. According to Chingono, the objective was attainment of black majority rule in an independent multiracial Zimbabwe, leading to equitable distribution of wealth among its population. Land was at the center of ideas about wealth and wealth redistribution. The war began in 1967 and ended in 1979. Early in the war, casualties at the hands of the Rhodesian security forces were suffered mainly by black citizens and by the nationalist guerrillas. That is to say that the casualties of the war were generally amongst the black population and the guerrillas at the hands of the security forces. A change came about in 1972 when offensives in the Northeast launched by the Zimbabwe African National Liberation Army, ZANLA, which was the military wing of the Zimbabwe African National Union, ZANU, began to be recorded. The Rhodesian regime reacted to the offensives and its increased casualties with a wide range of new procedures and new regulations and, and legislation. Protected villages, PVs, were set up. Setting up these PVs involved moving as many as 45,000 people at a time from their homes away to areas that the Rhodesian National Army could secure more successfully against guerrilla infiltration. So there were mass displacements of people at that time. The intention of the wide range of new regulations and legislation by the Rhodesian state after 1972 was typified by the Indemnity and Compensation Bill of 1975. The effect of this bill was to indemnify the Rhodesian security forces, including their mercenaries from various countries, for any action carried out while pursuing the security objectives of the Rhodesian state. That is to say that members of the Rhodesian security forces were secured against any legal liability in advance for any action whatsoever that they performed in service of the Rhodesian state, which they might carry out at any time in the future. Special courts to try those said to be working against it in the war effort were also set up by the Rhodesians. Virtually any opposition to the Rhodesian regime was indictable and some writers have noted that the courts were very close to being kangaroo courts. The tactics of the 50 to 80% Black Special Forces Regiment, the Salu Scouts, is worthy of note. Maxi, in an outline of the armed struggle in Zimbabwe, writes, 
according to interviews with Rhodesian army deserters by the World Council of Churches. The scouts go into a village pretending to be guerrillas and get food and information. They are followed shortly after by the regular army who interrogate the villagers. When they leave, the scouts return, accuse the villagers of giving information to the army as if they were true guerrillas, and then the scouts half destroy the village. As a result, it becomes difficult for the villagers to know who they are talking to and what they should say to whom. It is important here to see that villagers were affected by these tactics of both physical and psychological violence. At the same time, it is generally accepted that nationalist guerrillas killed more black civilians than they killed either Rhodesian security forces or white Rhodesians and even the two combined. It is said that one reason for guerrilla use of extreme violence against black Zimbabweans was to punish traitors and anyone who collaborated with the Rhodesian regime. Another reason was to overcome the disincentive of Rhodesian retribution because Rhodesian vengeance strongly inhibited the people from expressing their political support, even though this is what the people felt for the guerrillas. So the guerrillas had to overcome this inhibition that was caused by Rhodesian retribution and punishments. Guerrilla violence was thus a tactic to overcome fear of Rhodesian reprisal and the attraction of rewards the Rhodesian regime offered through instilling into the majority population a fear of consequences of non-cooperation with the nationalist effort, which was far greater than the fear which the black majority felt for the Rhodesian regime and its army. Very important tactic there, the tactic of instilling fear of consequences of non-cooperation by the guerrillas. And thus we see in the case of the guerrillas also a mixture of physical and psychological violent tactics. In terms of displacement of individuals, school children from several institutions were abducted to join the nationalist war effort. Thus, at the time of political independence, one of the meanings of Uhuru, at the time of political independence, Zimbabwe had a violent outgoing state. It also had a violent formation as incoming state. Both of these entities had pursued their objectives through practices of violence, which were used to subdue and instill fear in citizens. There was an incoming political framework called majority rule, which was informed by ideas about wealth, wealth redistribution, land possession, and the black vote as the hallmarks of success of the armed struggle.
Marxist rhetoric underpinned a focus on material possession and class. Other rising nationalistic rhetoric informed a focus on race, with the logical extension of this flowing into tribal rhetoric focused on ethnicity. Military rhetoric centered on conflict, antagonism, and enmity. The discursive legacy of the armed struggle is one of preoccupation with acquisition of material wealth, expropriating and sanctioning groups said to be other, and also a preoccupation with enemies who work to undo what the armed struggle effected. Clearly, the discursive legacy of the armed struggle is diametrically opposed to the discursive freedoms governing the right to personal security and dignity prescribed in the Constitution of Zimbabwe. Glaringly absent in the armed struggle rhetoric which informed the new Zimbabwean state are ideas about the nation state and ideas about those who together constitute the nation state, that is, the citizens. Individuals do not inform any of this rhetoric. Rather, as was the case during the armed struggle, individuals with hopes, needs, desires and, and aspirations are disembodied into one mass of existence whose sole purpose is to enable the agenda of those who are in power to succeed. Zimbabwean existence becomes a never-ending contestation for power. To those in power, Zimbabwe was never and is not a nation of several million persons whose existence must be secured and dignified. Rather, it is a location in which politico-military desires are to be met. To the extent that any nation-building values were invoked, these values were intended to service the politico-military machinery, which did not at any time see itself in service to or bound by such nation-building values. I now want to inquire which discourse, whether the violent otherizing discourse of the liberation struggle or the freedom guaranteeing discourse of the constitution has informed state interaction with its citizens in the post-political independence era. The evidence is that violent actions have been perpetrated against citizens in significant measure following independence. Notably, these incidents of violence flare up during times of heightened political tension, such as elections or the formation of a new party when power distribution is at stake. Complaints of intimidation and torture 
were made during the independence election period in 1980, as far back as then. Following the war and the brutality surrounding the 1980 elections, violence continued with the 1983-87 Kukurahundi genocide in Matebeleland in the south. The situation improved somewhat in the 1990s. This improvement followed the signing of the Unity Accord, which ended the Matebeleland genocide. With this Unity Accord, ZANU-PF engulfed and contained the Zimbabwe African People's Union, ZAPU, ZAPU being largely, but not entirely correctly, seen as an Ndebele ethnic grouping. After the 1990s, violence escalated again in 2000. This violence followed the formation of the Movement for Democratic Change, MDC, the previous year. The rejection of the government's draft constitution in February of 2000, then the elections in March, and conflicts around land reform. This all happening early in 2000 and generating violence. The presidential elections of 2002, contested by incumbent Robert Mugabe of ZANU-PF and Morgan Changirai of NDC as front runners, saw another escalation in violence. That's now 2002. In 2005, Parliamentary elections were preceded by Operation Murambachina, Operation Refusal of Dirt, which destroyed the homes and or livelihoods of 700,000 urban citizens and displaced over 2 million more, the urban centres being seen as NDC strongholds. Alex Magaisa tells us unprecedented levels of state-sponsored violence in which 200 people were killed, 5,000 more were assaulted, and 36,000 were displaced, took place between the end of March and June 27, 2008. This violence, (coughs) excuse me, So that was violence taking place between the end of March and June 27, 2008. This violence was associated with the presidential election, also contested by Robert Mugabe and Morgan Changirai as the frontrunners. Less than a decade later, the violence invaded ZANU-PF itself with events that led to the coup of November 2017. Talking about these events from 1980 to 2017, this is only some of the violence, the violent incidents that were recorded. Um, It's not possible to give a comprehensive account of these incidents in the short time that we have today. Following 2017, the Zimbabwe Human Rights NGO Forum informs that 
organized violence and torture has increased in Zimbabwe since November 2017. There were 24 abductions, that is kidnappings of citizens, said to have been affected by state agents in 2018. In 2019, there were 67 alleged abductions. This year, 15 abductions have been reported, 11 of them in connection with the July 31 protest. The abductions are typically said to be accompanied by beatings and torture. Some forms of torture are alleged to be physical, while others are said to be degrading, designed to break a person down and to deprive a person of dignity. Together, the foregoing instances make 106 incidents in which the right of Zimbabwean citizens to liberty was breached and the right to freedom from torture and demeaning treatment was infringed upon in the three years since the coup. These cases are some of the most extreme which have occurred. Sources report many other instances of beatings and infringement of the right to personal security in this time since 2017. And in addition to this, 25 extrajudicial killings are alleged since November 2017. The outcomes of the above acts of violence have all favored the retention of ZANU-PF in the offices of state. This raises the strong suspicion that the governing party, which styles itself the ruling party, has a hand in the violence in order to maintain its hold on power. Nevertheless, it is conceivably arguable and the Zimbabwean authorities have used this argument in the past, that the modes of violence described this evening do not emanate from the ZANU-PF-controlled state, but from some other entity. A test of this contention lies in the reaction of the Zimbabwean state to the violence. How does the Zimbabwean state react? Does it act to protect and secure its citizens? Does the Zimbabwean state give citizens recourse when their rights are infringed in such violent manner? What does the state do? In a presentation on the topic, the scourge of state-sponsored abductions, arbitrary arrests, torture and violence in Zimbabwe, how to stop it now. Tony Reeler pointed out that there has been impunity following all these instances of violence. Reeler describes a post-independence 40-year-long cycle of violence followed by impunity. Impunity was inscribed into the very structure of the newly forming Zimbabwean state in 1979 by virtue of the Zimbabwe Amnesty Act, which provides no legal proceedings whatsoever, whether civil or criminal, 
shall be instituted in any court of law in respect of any act to which this section applies done within southern Rhodesia or elsewhere before the 21st of December 1979. That meant that all the brutality and violence and the atrocities of the liberation struggle were simply washed away as though they had not taken place. That there was no such thing as a war crime with respect to the liberation struggle. The 1979 Zimbabwe Amnesty Act was followed in 1980 by the Amnesty General Pardon Act, which provided a free pardon is hereby granted to every person in respect of any act committed by him being an act which constitutes a criminal offense to which this act applies. With this act, in 1980, those who perpetrated violence around the 1980 elections were granted impunity. Mandikwaza tells us that both these acts of 1979 and 1980, which granted impunity and erased all war crimes, formed part of the Lancaster House Agreement, which ended the armed struggle and which agreement was brokered by Great Britain. Clemency Order Number 1 of 1988 followed the unity accord between ZANU-PF and ZAPO, which had been signed 18 months earlier. It granted amnesty with respect to all human rights violations committed by the state security forces and so-called dissidents between 1982 and the end of 1987. This act exonerated all those who had been involved in the Gukurahundi genocide. Clemency Order Number 1 of 1995 was issued after the general elections of that year in response to violence around the general elections in the year. In 2000, President Mugabe's Clemency Order Number 1 of 2000 gave free pardon to every person liable to criminal prosecution for any politically motivated crime committed during the period 1 January 2000 to 31 July 2000. Rape, murder and fraud were accepted, but those who committed these accepted crimes were not seriously pursued. Clemency Order Number 1 of 2002 covered acts of violence in the run-up to the presidential election of that year so that there were no prosecutions. Now, in addition to amnesties for widespread violence that flared up at election time and other critical moments, clemency was also granted to state-aligned agents who participated in acts of violence upon individuals 
or smaller groups. Edward Kanengoni and Gizito Chibamba were tried and convicted of attempted murder of Patrick Kombai in 1990. Kombai was contesting the general election in Gweru under the banner of Zimbabwe Unity Movement, ZUM, against ZANU-PF. The attack was carried out three days before the election day. Kombai was shot and nearly killed. The two were apprehended and tried, but released when Robert Mugabe exercised his presidential pardon. Now, there are two kinds of impunity. Impunity may be official through direct legislation or pardon, as described above, and impunity may be unofficial through failure of the state to arrest and prosecute perpetrators. I now give a few examples of unofficial impunity where the state failed to pursue, arrest, and prosecute perpetrators. And I'm going to begin by talking about cases where the violence was perpetrated upon individuals. And then I will go on to give one example of more widespread violence. So with respect to where violence was perpetrated on individuals, human rights defender Jessina Mukoko was abducted in 2008. Her abductors admitted in the civil court that the abduction had occurred. They were ordered to pay compensation, but there was no action from the state. Activist Itai Zamara was abducted in 2015, never to be heard of again. The motor vehicle used for the abduction and its owner were traced, but the state took no action. More recently, those involved in the abduction of Joanna Mamombe, Cecilia Chimbiri, and Netsai Maroa, who were abducted after an NDC demonstration on May 13 this year, have not been pursued by the state. Rather, the three women have been charged with faking an abduction and are to face trial. Tawanda Muchehiwa was abducted on 30 July this year in Bulawayo. CCTV footage of the event enabled the car involved to be tracked to Impala Car Rentals in Harare. Impala Car Rentals has been directed to hand over relevant data by the court, but has not done so. Now, um, to talk a little bit about unofficial impunity for widespread violence. The Global Political Agreement of 2008, which ended violence associated with contestations between ZANU, PF and NDC in that year, is an example of unofficial impunity for widespread violence. While an institution to deal with national healing and reconciliation was formed as a result of the global political agreement, there was consensus among the three major Zimbabwean political parties that signed the agreement that there would be no processes of justice involving perpetrators or for affected citizens. 
It is worthy of note that this agreement was brokered by former South African President Thabo Mbeki. Magaisa indicates that official agreements which ended widespread violence in Zimbabwe, such as the Lancaster House Agreement, the Unity Accord, and the Global Political Agreement are top-down elite processes, which should not take into account the wishes and needs of the ordinary citizen. Instead, these elite pacts leave the ordinary citizens without justice, recourse, or rehabilitation, and psychologically burdened. Impunity also extends to other crimes. For example, in 1989, a presidential pardon was given to Frederick Schauer, who was convicted of perjury for lying to a commission investigating large-scale corruption. In issuing the pardon, Mr. Mugabe said, Who amongst us has not lied? Yesterday, you were with your girlfriend and you told your wife that you were with the prime minister. Should you get nine months for that? These words indicate a male supremacist, casual attitude to justice that has come to characterize Zimbabwean culture, the Zimbabwean state and Zimbabwean politics. Today, Frederick Schauer is Zimbabwe's permanent representative to the United Nations. I come now to my conclusion. From the above, it is clear that Zimbabwean citizens' right to life, to personal liberty, to human dignity, to personal security, to freedom from torture or cruel, inhuman or degrading treatment or punishment is not respected by the Zimbabwean state. Other objectives are more important to the state machinery. Therefore, the state does not intervene to stop or remedy such violations when they occur. And there is strong evidence that the state is complicit in the acts through the ZANU-PF governing party. It is clear that under the threat attendant upon cycles of violence and impunity, Zimbabweans cannot think, act, or speak as they want. Thus, I conclude, Zimbabwean citizens do not enjoy freedom in the general sense of Uhuru after political independence, that is, the narrow sense of Uhuru. I did intend to look at the definition of crisis and discuss whether such a situation in which Zimbabweans do not enjoy freedom in the general sense of Uhuru could, said to could be said to constitute a crisis or not. However, time is limited. I end with this. While the Zimbabwean state argues that there is no crisis in Zimbabwe, as a community voice, I argue that where a population is subjected to repetitive cycles of violence, which repeatedly violate discursive freedoms guaranteed under the constitution, there is a nation state in crisis. 
clearly the values which inform the Oliver and Adelaide Tambo Foundation, the values of integrity, selflessness, and collective servant leadership are not observed in such a situation. Democracy cannot thrive and is actively, willfully abandoned in such a context. I hope that as engagement with the Zimbabwean situation unfolds in Zimbabwe, in the region, on the continent, and internationally, increasing attention will be given to what can concretely be done peacefully to end this crisis, which affects millions of people, even if it does not affect a very small percentage of politico-military elites in Zimbabwe. I had prepared some pointers on this, but again, time eludes me. Thank you for your attention. Tsitsi Dangaremba doing what she does best, speaking her truth, a truth that she has been telling for the longest time. In the minute and a half that remains, I am more than happy to take some calls on this in the new hour because following on from this very lecture which is a discussion essentially on the legacy that Mr. and Mrs. Oliver and Adelaide Tambo for the best part of their lives were fighting for was that Africa does not have to tell the story in 2021. I think we need to honestly have an assessment of ourselves as a people, as a post-colonial continent, a post colonial conflict that has been trying to build itself from the yoke, if not colonialism, in this case South Africa, apartheid, and whether or not that project is going according to the script that would have been part of the script in the days of the struggle itself or in the days in the bearing of the yoke of colonialism. In the new hour, we shall be in conversation in this context then with Ms. Zengeziwe Simang, who is the CEO of the Oliver and Adelaide Tambo Foundation. They celebrate their 10th anniversary. They were established in 2010. And of course, matters incidental to the rule of law, freedom, political rights, and the balancing of human freedoms, a necessary conversation that has to take place. I've seen one or two messages that have come through, and perhaps we should have a very robust discussion then, ladies and gentlemen, as we did last week following Professor Mamdani's speech. I don't see any exception being the case this evening. Until then, it's time for news.